0: Very proud to have her with us. We hope she will continue with us for a long time to come, and she's now going to tell us what she's going to do during that long time. Well, uh,
1: thank you very much. It's, it's a great, great pleasure to be here, and I, I wanted to uh, say, especially to be as part of this panel. Uh, uh, Sir Anthony Kenny, whom I first met one time when Wilma Minty, who's standing at the very back of the room, invited me here to speak uh, when I was at the Library of Congress back in the 90s, uh, 15 or 16 years ago, and I was talking about cataloging at the Library of Congress, and here was Tony Kenney, who was then the chairman of the board of the British Library, sitting in the audience, and I was speaking in the Sheldonian, admittedly in the lower part of the Sheldonian, uh, and I thought I had just reached the pinnacle of anything I could ever aspire to, was to have that. And uh, and then you can imagine my delight to come here as Bodley's librarian. And then when Alice was coming now, as, as a colleague I've now known for uh, a number of years, uh, to, to be the principal of Somerville, but Alice, who I always will think of as a, a university librarian and Ivy League colleague, uh, it, was, it was a wonderful uh, reunion that I think for all of us to be associated with this, this panel. So we're going to talk to you today about uh, some of the issues that are um, of importance in the, in the uh, area of libraries that are very much on people's minds. And I thought, I don't have a title for this talk. But it it might have been, uh, should the king's arms be Oxford's next library? Uh, And why would I say that? Well, you have this very first slide up here. Uh, A month ago, the Department of Culture, Media, and Sport issued a report. And it was documenting a very steep and steady decline in in the use of public libraries by adults over the past five years, down from 48.2% to 38.4%. And uh, there are other figures about that. In, in the, um, uh, I happened to be moving that day, so I had the advantage of being able to listen to BBC4 BBC uh, sort of incessantly. And uh, this, this was covered a lot in the, in the uh, news of the day. Uh, Culture Minister Ed Vasey, who is a uh, Mertonian and uh, who held the rank of librarian in the Oxford Union, was commenting, and his comment was that the and Dragon pub in Hudswell was now providing both library service and a pint, and he hoped people wouldn't get hung up on library buildings. Uh, so you could, you could imagine the controversy that was reigning as a result of that. Well, I've been collecting headlines about the uh, demise of libraries and books uh, for at least 10 years, and I have just a, a few of them to to give you. Uh, in, in 2001, the Christian Science Monitor ran a story called The Deserted Library, and they actually had another library in um, Kansas that was one of these large reading rooms with one young woman seated in it. This happened to be one that I snapped at another library, in fact, the library where I started my professional career, at Harvard's Widener Library, about 10 o'clock in the morning um, one day. So indeed, a number of years ago, it was not entirely uncommon, particularly at certain times of the day to see deserted libraries. Um, the, the Chronicle of Higher Education ran a story that at the same time that with the headline, As Students Work Online, Reading Rooms Empty Out, Leading Some Campuses to Add Starbucks. So that was a, another. And then uh, in 2004, I found a headline from the Independent and that was headlined, A Minute's Silence Please for the Late Public Library. And uh, that was reporting on an earlier version of this report about the use of, of public libraries. Um, and uh, it said they were facing a, a terminal decline. Also in 2004, The New York Times ran on the front page. You know, librarians, we're very excited when we see ourselves on the front page of the New York Times. We were below the fold, but nonetheless, um, it was then kind of a disappointment to see this headline, Old Search Engine the Library Tries to Fit in a Google World, and uh, someone that we know saying, we can't pretend people will go back to walking in a library and talking to the reference librarian. So we had we had that. And then um, more recently, in uh, 2007, Newsweek ran uh, this issue, which was playing on that, uh, I don't know if you'll remember that Time magazine cover from uh, 1966, sort of Is God Dead? And uh, this was sort of the library version of it, uh, saying, um, so he's Jeff Bezos is holding the Kindle, and uh, five centuries after Gutenberg, Amazon's Jeff Bezos is betting the future of reading is just a click away, or books aren't dead, they're just going digital. So uh, the popular media certainly have that. Rupert Murdoch, uh, always a controversial figure, in 2009 said, I do certainly see the day when more people will be buying their newspapers on portable reading panels than on crushed trees. Um, And then um, in July of this year, the business section of the New York Times uh, led with this story about e-books, top hardcovers at Amazon so that the sales of electronic books were beginning to outstrip, at least in Amazon sales, uh, the the sale of hardcovers. And it said Monday was a day for history books if those will even exist in the future. Uh, So there's no doubt that we are in a period of ferment and really even revolutionary change. And uh, With that, I'll show you a very revolutionary change for Oxford, for the Bodleian. This is our latest library. Look at it. (laughs) It's a warehouse, and it's out in Swindon, and it's going to hold 8.4 million volumes on these shelves. Uh, We took possession of this building on the 6th of September, and over the next... Um, a few months through July of of 2011, we'll be emptying our former book warehouse, which was the new Bodleian Library. You might not have thought of it as such, but actually it's been holding three and a half million volumes in it. And it's going to take us that long to empty it out to put on these shelves. Now, some of that is a temporary move because... The conditions of the New Bodleian were not fit to hold our our, uh, collections, but some of it is a permanent move because we were simply bursting at the seams. Um, We find that, and I'll talk more about this, but we find that our digital use is increasing. We have over 6 million uses of licensed uh, electronic resource content compared to about 2 million uses that we document of uh, paper publications. And I I say very specifically that we document because actually the digital uh, statistics are are highly inadequate. We can't really tell. That's only a segment of the licensed e-resources that we can track, but other electronic resources we can't. And of course, in our use of our paper documents, we cannot really capture the number of times that people come up and take a book off the shelf and consult it and and put it back. Um, We we do find, though, that our, our, our use of our digital resources is growing and the use around the world is growing. So last year in October, I was out at Google. We've had a project with Google to digitize about 400,000 public domain titles, so titles that are not uh, covered under copyright right now and they had done some statistics and had taken the top uh, 10 titles from the Bodleian collection that had been used. And one title received almost 20,000 uses in a single seven-day period. And uh, the 10 top ones had almost 80,000 uses over that seven-day period. So that's um, the top title was Emma. (laughs) It was very interesting to see what people were were looking at. Um, We're continuing to purchase access to online resources because of the enhanced access they provide. The fact that you can um, cut across multiple texts and drill down and search on a single word um, there's, there are a lot of benefits beyond just the convenience of being able at two in the morning or when you're off on another continent being able to uh, look at these things. But does that mean that because there is so much embracing of digital collections that the physical book and the physical library are things of the past as all of those headlines Uh, suggest. I think, uh, looking at my countryman, Mark Twain, who so famously said, the reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. Um, Every week, still, at the Bodleian, there are lorries that come and disgorge 300,000 items from our legal deposit uh, uh, agreement. And over thousand items come into us from gift and purchase. So we're, we're sometimes you'll even see the figure five hundred thousand items. Uh, that includes magazine, individual magazine issues. So that's why I'm sort of rounding it down to to four thousand. Um, so we took possession, as I said, on this, on the sixth of September, of this storage facility in Swindon. It's 125,000 square feet. It's 12 meters high, and we're going to be moving over the next 18 months six and a half million volumes that are currently dispersed. Where are those volumes? I said they're in the New Bodleian Library. They're out um, at Newnham Courtney, 1.2 million volumes out there, and in the salt mines in Cheshire, uh, almost 2 million that we've been paying commercial storage because we just simply have not had the capacity to bring in everything that we we own. So this creation of this high-density storage facility is part of a trend to manage collections differently in the digital age. We are at the Bodleian working to sort our collections so that we can put very high-demand material on open shelves so that our readers or our users can come and consult that material directly without having to uh, put in a request and wait a couple of hours for things to be delivered and as i said uh, earlier we're we're having this trend to move things to electronic forms so lots and lots of periodicals uh, not just in the scientific field but even in the humanities are now available electronically so we are continuing to hold the print, which we will store in, um, in our book storage facility, but the actual user requests for consulting that material, uh, they're declining. So it becomes, the, the book as artifact becomes important, but if someone's just dipping into it for content, then they're often content with uh, consulting the electronic version. And uh, when we're full out there in Swindon, we're expecting only 3 to 4% of the collection to be requested in, in any, any given year from those materials that are stored out there. And meanwhile, our superseded book stack, the New Bodleian, will be transformed from an ugly duckling into the Weston Library. And this is the architect's concept of what it will look like. Now, I'm sure you're all picturing the New Bodleian as it is right now. Uh, It's been called, um, someone said, oh, you mean that building that looks like a a municipal swimming pool? Um, And some other people have said, well, what about that? It's that one that's like the prison-like fortress, right? and um, many of you might know it as the one that had the PPE reading room in it but and Howard Colvin who is uh, our distinguished architectural historian here at Oxford called it a a dinner jacket in Harris Tweed Uh, (laughs) so it's um, it's a listed building but not necessarily the most beloved architectural representative and Actually, the silver lining in the sort of condemning this building as no longer fit for purpose as a book stack because the book stacks were built in an era. This building was built in the very late 30s. It was occupied by um, people on behalf of the war effort in the early 40s and really the library didn't begin to uh, use it until after the war. But it, um, it, it, the, the way in which the stacks were constructed would have allowed fire to race through it, would have caused its very thin steel co- columns to just uh, melt, and, and 11 stories of books to sort of pancake down. Uh, there were pipes running through it. There wasn't air conditioning. It was no place to keep the Bodleian treasures. So over the next four years, what we'll be doing by transferring the bulk of the paper collections out of it to Swindon, we will be able to then use what is actually an enormous amount of space for people and for our rare books and for the interaction of people and our our special collections. So the basic concept is that we will take the portals, the, excuse me, the windows along Broad Street, which right now sort of signify keep out. The blinds are drawn. You can't ever figure out how to get into the building. And instead, we'll create a very graduated set of steps. Um, the plasters will become, part of, will become columns. We'll have a colonnade. People will be able to enter into the building, and it will become our new show place for exhibitions and for events to where we can combine special collections with, uh, with visitors and with advanced scholarship. So some of our collections that we have, and they will continue to be stored uh, in the building. So underground, we're going to have three uh, levels of fireproof compartments, uh, state-of-the-art environmental control, and uh, we have, uh, for example, four engrossments of Magna Carta, uh, 25% of the surviving uh, documents here in, in the UK. Um, and uh, yeah, so King John at Runnymede, we don't have him. Um, and uh, when we put now. Magna Carta on display, as we did a few years ago. We put all four on display. We announced it very hurriedly for one day. Here in this very room, you'll recognize this room, we had over a 1,000 people queue on a December day that wasn't much different uh, than this. It was a little colder even, but it was pretty cold and gloomy, and people came. Now they'll actually be able to see on display, on permanent display, at least one of our engrossments of of Magna Carta. You'll enter into the Blackwell Hall and have the ability to orient yourself to uh, that floating book stack is meant to replicate the galleries in Duke Humphrey's, and to have people come in and see this is a library. There are books there. These books are important, and not only that, those books will be open access consultation books for our scholars, uh, for our readers. And so the visitors will be able to see this is a very active uh, library universe. And I said we'll be having uh, two exhibition galleries. So right now, I do encourage you to go see the John Aubrey uh, exhibition uh, in um, the, the, the uh, Old Schools Quadrangle, which is, is just a fascinating exhibition, but so tiny, so cramped, and suddenly we're going to triple our exhibition space. So that will be good, and the kinds of things we'll be able to be putting on display will be this Mendelssohn score, where he illustrated this uh, shelf lead, which we acquired just a couple of years ago, uh, books uh, from the Ashmole uh, collection, um, other um, things from uh, the, the Codex Mendoza, for example, other, uh, our books of ours, and people will be able to come in and hear other people talk about them. So we're, we're, we're quite challenged here, actually I'm, I'm delighted, probably because it's a cloudy day, uh, to, to display anything. And uh, so having a stepped auditorium that's fully technologically equipped will be a big boon for us in teaching and welcoming groups to the Bodleian. There will be traditional reading rooms. This will be the room at the uh, top of the Bodleian library, so we're not losing that aspect, but we're adding, we're able to add a whole uh, array of other services in that. more and more we're finding that people want to work together uh we're we're very challenged if we want to take one of our rare books and put it uh where a group of two or three people can talk about it in a normal voice uh we really have to uh hope that someone's out sick that day and we can use their office i mean it's 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 very difficult so we'll be building in spaces with Uh, flexible furniture where people can come and sit and talk in a wired environment. So we'll have uh, those those things. Uh, In addition, we'll be able to have a a world-class conservation laboratory for our world-class materials. Um, I did want to say as well that one of the things, we recognize that it is a great privilege to be able to come here to Oxford, whether as a student or as a, as a visitor or as a visiting scholar. But there are many people who are hungry to know about our collections. And for them, the opportunity to consult the original uh, is not always forthcoming. So we are working uh, collaboratively with a number of institutions to put more and more of our materials online. For example, uh, we're working with the Folger Shakespeare Library and other libraries to digitize the Shakespeare quartos and uh, make those digitally available for people. So you can still come and consult the original, but if you want to do some research across, a variety of repositories, there'll be the digital access. And um, uh, just lastly, uh, the John Johnson collection. I don't know if if, uh, any of you have have done any work in the John Johnson collection. John Johnson was the printer to OUP, and he collected uh, printed ephemera, and printed ephemera amassing a collection of 1.5 million items. And it's an absolute gold mine for uh, advertisements, for information about public executions, um, uh, information about when the Thames froze over. And this is drawn from the John Johnson collection to, to be able to show. So we have all of that material will be available for consultation Uh, the physical object is actually a very important uh, piece of the material, but at the same time we're trying to digitize it bit by bit so that it's available for other people. So I would say that as we look at our collections, as we bring them online, we find that it actually drives use to the library. So putting, for example, the posters of the Conservative Party Archive online means that the use of um, having, having material on the web has quadrupled the number of visits and number of requests that are being made of the physical collection. So it's not actually siphoning off use. It's actually dramatically increasing it. So we don't feel that the digital is a threat for the Bodleian. It provides new avenues for scholars. And um, it provides a way for people to, to embark on new kinds of research. When I was at Google last year, I saw a fascinating presentation by two scientists uh, from uh, MIT and Harvard, I think. One was French and one was Israeli. as a sort of sign of how global we are. And what they had done was to look at the books that had been digitized as part of, of Google uh, Google the Google Book Project, and they had searched on past participles and irregular verbs, and how uh, uh, a verb became regular. So, uh, you know, if you talk about um, wedded bliss, for example, uh, they they then um, can begin to tell you. the half-lives of verbs. So very common verbs such as be and think will have long half-lives. So the half-life of be, they had 38,800 years, and uh, think 14,400 years for that to become. uh, So they think they'll never become regular. But uh, other verbs, uh, irregular verbs with lower frequencies of use such as Shrive and Smite have half-lives of 300 years and 700 years, so they're likely to succumb to regularization. And they predict the next one to regularize will be wed. So they say, now your last chance will be to be a newly wed. The married couples of the future can only hope for wedded bliss. So <laughs> that's the kind of scholarship that people are able to undertake with the, with the digital world. But meanwhile, we feel with our our transformation uh, of the new Bodleian Library, the new facilities we're building, the collections that we continue to acquire and to discover uh, will yield surprises for people that will be extraordinary. And I'll just talk about the latest one that I've seen. we have someone who's been interested in uh, the history of a, of a home that he's bought and restored, and he's been supporting an archivist to look through the Bodleian's papers. So he looked through the, uh, the usual suspects. That was the first year, and uh, the gentleman funding this project was so excited That he said, you know, I'll fund you for another year. So then our archivist began looking at less usual suspects. So, for a house that has a history that dates back 700 years and where Princess Elizabeth lived before she ascended the throne, uh, our archivist began to look in something called Greek manuscripts. I'm thinking Greek manuscripts. What will you possibly find in there? But in fact, these Greek manuscripts is sort of like a scrapbook with these books pasted, with these letters pasted in. Uh, they came from the time of Elizabeth I, and in this he found all sorts of letters about the Armada, and with Elizabeth's great flourishing uh, signature. So there are things that have been here at the Bodleian for. Uh, 300 years that we haven't really known what the contents were and we have let me tell you in our millions and millions of of paper holdings many more discoveries like that to make so I think that we find that libraries are changing there's no sense that they aren't flourishing they have some new directions but we are very pleased with the directions they're going here at the Bodleian. And I hope you will be, too, as you explore uh, some of the changes that we have underway. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, thank you, sir. That was wonderful. And there's something very symbolic about sitting in this ancient room uh, listening about the latest developments in information technology. I was particularly uh, interested in what you had to say about the new Bodleian. Um, 10 years ago, I was made uh, Pro-Vice Chancellor for Development and one of my jobs was to try to raise money for the Bodleian. And I said to the then Bodleys librarian, You know, it would be much easier to raise money if you knocked down the new Bodleian and we tried to get a new named building. The reaction of Sarah's predecessor was to get the building listed. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm having been, uh, having shared for a long time uh, the hatred of many readers for the new Bodleian, I'm delighted to learn of this new life that it is going to have. Yes, as, the, as the, the Western Library, yes, thank you. <laughs> well, now <laughs> we uh, turn to Dr. Alice Prohaska, who, as most of you will know, uh, has just returned to Oxford uh, in order to take up uh, the principalship of Somerville. Uh, she took her undergraduate degree and her doctorate in modern history Uh, as a member of Somerville. Uh, She began as a museum curator and trained as an archivist and worked as an archivist in many renowned institutions, the National Archives of the UK, the director of the uh, Institute of Historical Research in London. And uh, when I got to know her, she was director of Special Collections at the British Library. Uh, We were both there at a rather low point in the history of the British Library, when it was being built and all kinds of snags had been discovered, shelves that uh, discarded books, uh, insulation that was stripping away. It was so bad that I found that if I wanted to get a taxi to the British Library, Uh, I had to say I would like a taxi to St Pancras Station because otherwise the taxi driver would lecture you for ten minutes about the (laughs) terrible waste of money that the British Library was. Uh, However, I think those of you who now use it as a reader will realise that after all its travels, it has become a most wonderful institution. And one of the... uh, colleagues whose company and expertise was most highly rated while I was there were was Alice Prohaska. She's published many books on historical subjects and especially on archives and libraries. And in recent years she's concentrated on the topic of the stewardship of historic collections and the difficulties involved in cultural restitution. Uh, She will share with us now her thoughts on the topic of the preservation of special collections and the problems that go with it.
2: Well, thank you very much, Tony. Um, As Sarah said, this is a bit of a reunion. The last time I attended a conference in this wonderful building, I was a relatively recently appointed Yale University librarian, and we were celebrating the 400th anniversary of the Bodleian, which, of course, from an American perspective, is an almost unimaginable antiquity. Uh, and I was here with two colleagues, close friends of Sarah's, as of mine, uh, and close professional colleagues, the librarian of Princeton and the librarian of Harvard College. Um, and the three of us had all elected to wear rather dark garb that day. And um, being uh, the, the representatives of the Ivy League, as we sat together in this room, uh, we heard ourselves described as the Lady Ivies. Um, So uh, I'm I'm quite glad to escape that appellation now. But for nine years, I did have the immense privilege of being university librarian at Yale, um, where I got to know Sarah very well when she was university librarian at Cornell. My remarks will be based on my experience outside Oxford, for the most part, partly because I've actually only been here for three weeks. That is, uh, since spending time at Somerville as a student. And um, I hope you will forgive me that I don't have lots of beautiful pictures. Um, I love using beautiful slides to illustrate the work that uh, we do in the great libraries of the world, but um, my possessions, my slides, my thinking are all still in a certain amount of disarray following my transatlantic transition. What I want to do in this talk is to dwell on the sort of material that lands up in libraries but equally could, sometimes does, belong in a museum, what to many librarians, not to Sarah, clearly, uh, is the awkward squad. Special collections, so named by librarians, um, consist of almost anything written or drawn on paper or parchment, from ancient religious scrolls hidden away in earthenware pots to wooden tally sticks like those whose caretakers disposing of unwanted records uh, in 1834 uh, caused the medieval Houses of Parliament to go up in smoke. From those to mouldy and termite ridden colonial records that look like lace when they emerge from their wrappers, modern mapping on vast sheets for which no reading table is sufficient. And then on to the formats that nobody used to know what to do with. Recorded sound from the earliest wax cylinders quietly deliquescing in library stores. Photographs printed on nitrate film that threatened whole warehouses of storage with spontaneous combustion. To moving pictures and tapes of every imaginable size with content of every imaginable kind that can only be read on obsolete machines which may possibly survive in your grandmother's attic, but otherwise can only be found in high-tech museums. Special collections, therefore, really are the awkward squad. All of this material is evidence of a human past. All of it is a precious inheritance, for someone at least, from which we have to select and amongst which we have to set priorities. In some cases, it's only the computer age Uh, and the aid of modern chemical and engineering advances that have begun to help us confront the reality that actually it's possible to preserve, to read and research within this material when previously it was dauntingly difficult, verging on impossible, to quarry from it the evidence we need. Special collections in the digital age thus become part of the vastly expanding universe of knowledge to which we refer in the title of this session. The objects and documents I'm referring to could be centuries, even millennia old, but technology reveals them in new ways. Um, Forgive me if I haven't got the order of my slides quite sleekly uh, ready, Um, And this is an instance of new technology revealing uh, material that we didn't know was there before. The ancient manuscript of the Beowulf legend, badly damaged in a fire in the 18th century, now resides in the British Library. And it was an early candidate for digitisation, revealing that characters hidden by charring and layers of repair were actually different from the way they had been read. A palimpsest of an early manuscript by Archimedes similarly appeared beneath layers of reuse of the parchment on which it had first been written. Ships' logs from European colonial trading expeditions in the early modern period turn out to be valuable sources of computer-collated information about climate change. And similarly, the demographic information in the massive ledgers of census and other records Uh, which sort of rub off with their rusty, uh, decaying leather on your sleeve as you read them. These, transformed into electronic databases, can be manipulated to reveal new information about the spread of epidemics, mortality trends over time and continents, and much more. There are other ways. Now I'm going to have to flick through. Here we go. Um, Some other ways in which digital revelation brings attention to material that may have existed for a very long time, but which in digital form suddenly becomes compelling for scholars and the media. And one such example is the manuscripts of medieval Timbuktu. Um, These manuscripts are uh, are owned by nomadic Tuareg families who uh, center on the great uh, sub-Saharan city of Timbuktu and have been in their possession since something like the 15th century and um, now desperately are in need of preservation. Until digitization made it possible for the world to see and know about these manuscripts, very few people cared about them. The people of Mali, the modern nation in which Timbuktu lies, have succeeded in uh, an extraordinary campaign to uh, bring attention to these manuscripts with the help of American, British, and other scholars, Um, and now they're safely housed. But until they could be digitized, uh, it was really uh, very unusual for anybody to teach the history of Africa or to understand about the cultural heritage of Africa uh, with reference to this material. We now understand far better than it was possible to do until recent times um, that uh, sub-Saharan Africa was actually the seat of an ancient civilization for which we should have the deepest respect and where there's an enormous amount of research still to be done. Um, This is another example, uh, rather uh, banally headed, uh, of our African heritage. Um, These are some materials um, from southeastern Europe and from northern Africa that also um, help us to uh, research into the uh, African heritage in ways that wasn't really uh, easily done until they could be digitized and compared with each other. The digital revolution brings us new information and introduces new challenges entirely in its own right too, not only as a vehicle for revealing new uses of old material. For modern librarians and archivists, one of the most exciting challenges has to be that of capturing today's sources of information for posterity in the ways that our predecessors over the century have done by putting together collections like the magnificent ones in the Bodleian. A recent study undertaken for the Center for Research Libraries in Chicago looked at the websites of political protest movements. Working with political scientists who specialize in different geographical areas, they found that more than 60% of the sites they used in their research had disappeared within two years, just vanished. The same is true for much of the evidence that would support the truth commissions opened up in different countries. And this is just one example of a way in which um, activists today working on behalf of uh, democracy in Burma are trying to put together an enduring Website of information and evidence in extremely difficult circumstances, and this would only be possible um, in, in electronic terms, really, since about 10 years ago. Um, the Yale University Library's relatively recent experience of working with Peruvian human rights groups has suggested to me, in another way, how difficult it is to exercise responsible stewardship of sensitive material that may turn out to be crucial evidence and will be needed for years to come. It is preserved, if at all, in the electronic ether. And lest we become complacent about our ability to preserve electronic material now in standard ways, we have only to think of the censorship of Google in China to understand that there are significant and insidious hazards. Another example of some sites that uh, may no longer be available, very important for the study of recent American political history. Um, Here is an example from my own recent experience at Yale of the sort of content that we can create in the digital area um, with uh, uh, interviews of Holocaust survivors, which have been put together in video format and are now being digitized. Again creating material, creating collections, ab initio, not just buying it or purchasing it or being given it. Um, These videos were put together by librarians carefully interviewing survivors of the Holocaust whose stories have now been captured as part of a collection, in this case at Yale University Library. Um, And there are other ways that oral histories can be created. I'm sorry, we don't have a link. I would have loved to play uh, the uh, tape of Duke Ellington to you, talking uh, in his beautiful gravelly voice about his view of jazz. Um, These just little examples to whet your appetite for thinking about all the extraordinary uh, ways in which library collections now exist in virtual uh, space as well as in our great buildings so in conclusion the role of librarians and archivists is to act as both stewards and presenters of evidence that may become important to research and learning in ways as yet unforeseen and in the information revolution in which we are the mid- which we are in the midst of now The uses of our known and acknowledged collections will be protean and unforeseeable. It has ever been thus and our duties as the collectors of tomorrow's past are unfathomable. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Alice, that was quite fascinating. We're delighted to welcome you back to Oxford. I'm sure that the fellows, students and alumni of Somerville will keep you quite busy, but I hope you won't be too busy to share some of your expertise to the library community in Oxford. Uh, Now we have 20 minutes available uh, for you to put questions to our speakers. There is a roving microphone. Hello. Um, I wondered if you had any thoughts about the challenges of preserving um, digital materials when technology changes so fast, especially in terms of kind of operating systems of computers that websites may be stored on, um, storage medium, media that may become obsolete, laser discs, USBs, and things. Um, It seems that the rate of digital decay is increasing as well as the the rate of, I suppose, production of information. Uh,
2: Well, I have lots of thoughts. (laughs) Um, Digital preservation has advanced enormously in uh, really the last decade or so. And um, partly, uh, I don't want to give a plug to uh, any particular corporation, but I have to say that partly due to the extraordinary advance of Microsoft in standardizing so much of what we do in the electronic environment um, and obviously other companies as well, um, we have begun to reach a stage where uh, we can f- uh, rely much better than we used to on some kind of steady state and um, just to be able to uh, know that we've got standard platforms for the material that's being produced electronically uh, makes it uh, mu- that much more possible to devise the means of migrating them forward. Um, so those of us who remember the era of Amstrad will know how very, very challenging it is to recapture anything from Amstrad disks. Uh, but these days, uh, we should be able to uh, recapture material that's been created in certainly in the last decade maybe in the last 20 years much more effectively. That's not to say that it is easy there are enormous challenges one of the most difficult things is the whole issue not so much of the um, physical science of physics and engineering of preservation but the decisions that have to be made by people like Sarah and myself and our colleagues Um, what do we select to keep At what stage do we decide that we should preserve a website that may be changing every 30 seconds? Um, How do we we harvest from the web the things that uh, scholars in the future will need to know? Um, Those are the issues that actually bother me much more than the science of physical preservation. And if I could just say, I think some of the
1: challenges that we face, and, and Alice has has uh, talked about the progress that's been made. Um, if you look at the budget of a, of a, an institution like the Bodleian or Yale University Library, it's people are very loath to stop doing anything. <laughs> you know, we we're not we are closing some buildings, but in fact, we're building new ones. We continue to acquire uh, collections. And so one of the challenges has been to find the funds to preserve adequately uh, these new digital um, uh, products. And we've been reallocating funding. We've been getting grant funding. We need to move from being um, somewhat opportunistic about the way we've been supporting it to institutionalize this. And uh, we have something called the digital asset management system that we have been the dams, as it's called, uh, that we've been uh, uh, developing at the Bodleian that will fulfill that role that we are grounding very uh, thoroughly. But then the second thing is that actually no single institution can, in this global environment, uh, begin to collect all of that data, so it demands a much more collaborative uh, uh, um, approach and collaborative uh, not just library to library, but libraries and corporations and government, all of us uh, coming together around this.
3: Thank you. My family think I'm crazy because I've kept every email I've ever written since about 1993 because I think it was instilled into me in this place that you hang on to documents. But it strikes me that, you know, I I think I am an oddity in this digital world. Um, And while most of my sort of writing is sort of, you know, uh, trivia and sort of, you know, will be of no use or interest to to really anyone, I'm concerned about all the the people who do make a significant contribution to our society in terms of their thinking, their writing, that in times to come, um, you know, there won't be the collected letters of or the collected thoughts of, because people will have deleted their emails. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there a role for libraries and librarians in trying to change this practice so that things which help us understand how people reached the conclusions and the thinking and constructed the, the works of art that they did, that those things that give us context are preserved.
1: Yeah, we have, first of all, let me commend you. You obviously have the soul of an archivist. Uh, <laughs>
3: so uh, <laughs>
1: That's uh, fantastic to know that, uh, <laughs> that you have this record uh, um, spanning almost 20 years uh, from very early emails. Uh, we have uh, at the Bodleian a, a project called Future Arch, which is a, a, a Mellon, uh, Andrew W. Mellon uh, Foundation-funded project that has enabled us to put in place both the technical infrastructure, but also some of the policy issues that need to be addressed to be able to, uh, and, and we use this language called ingest, but to take in... Um, a variety of, of digital uh, materials, and we've been focusing very much on um, political papers. So we received a few years ago Barbara Castle's papers, including her hard drives and uh, and that really brought home the need to be able to do this and I'm actually trying to position us so that we are the go-to place uh, for um, papers for political papers because we will have such a a well-defined routine um, to be able to to do that so we are doing that and then um, I'm I can't resist uh, this has nothing to do with us but it is germane to the topic Salman Rushdie Apparently, his his uh, papers are his papers are being acquired by Emory, isn't that right? Yeah, Coca-Cola money um, has has brought them to Emory. But apparently, every time Salman Rushdie writes a new book, he buys a new computer. And he, you know, he was putting the others in the in the in the closet, <laughs> and, and so now all those computers for all those books have moved to Atlanta, Georgia. And um, they are having the, the task of, of doing it. So there's a lot of enlightenment, I think, that we can do working with publishers, with individual authors, and creators of, of documents. I do think uh, this period, this kind of wild west of the development of the internet, there will be losses that are, are not strictly recoverable. Uh, but there have always been losses, I guess, in, in the past.
2: There have always been losses. Um, a lot of people, uh, when I first started my career as an archivist, speculated that um, information had been really uh, lost because of the advent of the telephone. Um, and in some ways, email has restored the art of writing uh, in a possibly slightly more abbreviated way form and one of the wonderful things about the information revolution is you simply don't know what's going to happen next. Um, You can't save everything but you've never been able to save everything and that is uh, the sort of consideration that keeps an archivist sane in the middle of the night. Um, or full employment <laughs> for us. <laughs> or, or, well, full employment for archivists. Uh, well, that, 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 that's a dream. That's a pipe dream. Um, just cite one example, which I will anonymize very slightly. Um, when I was working at the British Library, uh, one of my colleagues, um, now in Oxford actually, uh, was uh, working very closely with a, a literary figure Uh, to preserve his emails, which were an important part of the creative process, and got a long way towards agreement that this would happen, and indeed the paper papers of the literary figure went to the British Library, Um, and then all of a sudden, this unfortunate person um, became subject to uh, a, a claim, I think, quite spurious, of sexual harassment by email. And he destroyed all his emails, or at least he he most certainly wasn't about to transfer them to the British Library. Um, That can happen in the digital era, too. And um, it's one aspect of the preservation of this sort of information that we need to be very sensitive to. Digitization, the digital availability, the web, uh, give much, much higher visibility to material that impinges on people's privacy or, and or their copyright. And Sarah Cornell, I know, had some instances of this sort of thing happening. We've had it at Yale as well, and I'm sure it's happening at Oxford. Um, so we live in a different legal environment and a diff- different environment of privacy. Uh, and, and it just is, is, is different in all sorts of ways, not just technically. However, I'm optimistic. I think we're preserving a lot, we're managing to do a lot, uh, and certainly very exciting.
3: Hmm. There's one uh,
0: point you didn't uh, touch on that historically, it seems to me, has been a very important uh, role of libraries and librarians, and that is the creation of uh, scholarly tools themselves, that is, in the fields that I'm most familiar with medieval studies and literary study generally, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. most of the great catalogs and bibliographies from which other scholars actually uh, make their work have been produced by enormously learned uh, librarians after many years buried in. Uh, in these materials. Is that a possible role for the librarian of the future? Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Yes, it definitely is. And um, We were discussing the other day, one of the things uh, that's associated with the move of all of our material to Swindon, whether it's maps or music scores, um, manuscripts, Uh, are that many of them are not represented in in an online catalog. And then we started talking about some of these scholarly tools like first-line indices and other uh, material that we have accumulated. And they're they're not quite in shoeboxes, but they're they're definitely very low-tech. And uh, we want to both capture what has already been done, the labor, that, and, and it was very eloquently said by one of my colleagues, this is what made coming to an institution like Oxford so great, if you're a medievalist. Not only did we have the collections, we had the expertise in our curators, uh, the, the librarians who, who really knew things, and then the creation of these tools, and so the challenge, again, will be how to bring that into the online environment. And I'll, I'll just talk about one that, that um, I've just learned this week, that uh, Google will be funding a project with us where uh, we have hundreds of thousands, probably, of uncatalogued music scores. And the cost to catalog all of those materials and put them online was going to be something like four million, well, let's say three million pounds. And, and so it was just beyond our capacity to do. So I was trying to think about a new way to process them. So we're going to try a pilot in which we scan the scores and we do some rudimentary description, like composer or title or something that you can grab very easily from the score. And then we're going to put that out for the community of um, opera lovers and music lovers, uh, to, to bring their expertise to it. And then I think our curators, our experts in bibliographic things, will um, do the kind of uh, authority control on that or the editorial work on that. But it'll be a way of trying to marshal the power of the community, but create those tools uh, so that scholars will feel supported uh, in, in their work. So we're trying to experiment with both ways of bringing the old ones to life in a digital environment, but then uh, re-per- you know, rethink how we can do it in the, in the future. And definitely the people are what's going to be important in the future. It's that human intelligence to be able to connect A with B. I think that, that uh, computers just can't do as well as people right now.
0: Sarah, I'd like to put a question to you which was suggested by something that Alice said, uh, namely the the issue of repatriation. Because When when Alice and I were at the British Library together, there was considerable pressure uh, for the British Library to return to the monastery of Sinai, Mm -hmm. the Codex Sinaiticus, Mm -hmm. one of the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament. uh, On the whole, we postponed the issue, but I wanted to ask two questions. First of all, is whether you have any similar pressure on you in the Bodleian, Mm -hmm. and secondly, whether you think that digitization and the creation of of really fine virtual replicas is going to be the way to resolve the disputes about repatriation. Mm.
1: Yes, I mean the, the the disputes about repatriation are are highly emotional. Uh, the the attachment, the symbolic importance of some of these documents for for uh, countries is 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 strong. And so, in that sense, I don't think a digital surrogate um, is is probably for those countries always an adequate replacement mm-hmm. in in their sort of mental cosmology. But. Uh, the way uh, I at my previous institution we had a a a series of documents that were for an area in um, near Baltimore in Baltimore called Roland Park that had been designed by Frederick Law Olmsted who uh, designed Central Park and um, we had the plans for the houses that had been built in this in this exclusive development And they were inadequately described. And so we had someone who had been with us for 40 years who knew how to find them. And my head of rare books and uh, manuscripts said to me one day, you know, Sarah, why don't we just give these back to Baltimore? They'd be able to uh, take care of them better and and serve people. And people were very interested in finding these documents because if they could prove their house was one of the original ones, uh, they would get a tax rebate. So there, there was definitely money attached to it. But I said to Elaine, I said, "But uh, you know, think about the logical extension of that. If we give everything back, I mean, basically, we'll just be the Cornell University archive because every other uh, city and state and country can begin to ask for things. And in fact, we have things here at the Bodleian, and we had things at Cornell, that uh, the countries." from which they originated had been in such um, strife that those documents would have likely have been destroyed. And so what we're doing is we're preserving those documents. And I do think then the digital becomes uh, a way of sharing them. But I, I don't know that you can completely uh, disentangle from the emotional attachment people have to their heritage documents.
2: Yes. I um, well. Because of my days at the British Library, this is a subject that I've become deeply interested in, and I've found uh, a lot of what Sarah says is is, uh, absolutely, I I completely agree with, and one could give endless examples, I I often have, of materials of of great antiquity and much more recent materials that people cherish, where I agree the original somehow has an iconic value uh, that the digital version will never substitute for. Um, I find I've changed my opinion somewhat over the period since I first became director of special collections at the British Library, which was in 1992. And um, when I wrote papers for the British Library Board, presented to our <laughs> illustrious chairman, um, I was quite robust about taking refuge in the uh, statutes that said that the British Library could not give away or alienate any of its uh, possessions, end of story, and therefore we were being wonderfully um, expansive and inclusive and democratic and internationalist in digitizing the best uh, things as best we could and restoring them in that way to their communities, which often would not have been able to care for this material themselves. I have just two examples, one positive, one negative, The positive one is uh, an an exhibition of um, Armenian treasures that we held at the British Library in, I think, the year 2001. And um, it was the 1700th anniversary of the state of (laughs) Armenia uh, setting up the first uh, state Christian church, state-sponsored Christian church. the British Library holds fabulous uh, items of treasures of medieval Armenian uh, works of art. And we displayed these uh, with tremendous care and scholarship. And the um, Metropolitan of the Armenian Orthodox Church, the Ambassador from Armenia, who was also a, a former Prime Minister, if I remember rightly, and other dignitaries were there in their pointed hats. And to me, it was all very just picturesque. Um, And then the Archbishop, the Metropolitan, spoke. And he said, we were once a great nation. And we carried our manuscripts before us into battle. And they represented everything great about Armenia. And then we ceased to be a nation. Ten years ago, he said, we became a nation again. And we thank you for caring for our beautiful manuscripts and making sure that the culture and inheritance of Armenia was not lost. Um, I found that humbling and uh, very, very moving, a real affirmation of the importance of the original uh, and of the work that libraries in other countries can do for less fortunate countries. But I have also had experience, um, for example, from the northeastern region of the United Kingdom of England when um, a band of um, Northumbrians, (laughs) uh, a very small band, uh, came down by train to St. Pancras Station or to Kings Cross Station and marched with Northumbrian banners and fiddles and pipes to demand that the Lindisfarne Gospels be restored to the northeast from whence they came. And we wicked and filthy metropolitan institution that we were uh, absolutely should not claim this as our own. Now, the Lindisfarne Gospels is of incalculable value. It's insurance value I will not even mention. Um, it's one of the great works of art of Anglo-Saxon manuscript creation, the greatest, I think. And it uh, sits in the British Library alongside all of those wonderful Armenian manuscripts and all of the foundation documents of of different religions where people come to see it from all over the world. And some of those people probably go up to Newcastle and and Jarrow and Durham uh, as a result of having seen the Lindisfarne Gospels. Um, So the economic value is is not necessarily uh, an an easy proposition to, uh, to, to prove. Uh, but in the end, the British Library decided to loan the Lindisfarne Gospels back to the Northeast on occasion. Not too often, because actually travelling isn't terribly good for this uh, Anglo Saxon manuscript. Um, but uh, it, it defused the row at least to a very considerable extent. I wouldn't like to claim that the row has gone away completely because whenever there's a new member of parliament for for any constituency in the northeast, (laughs) is a nice juicy cause to to adopt. Um, But uh, it was, while the British Library had digitized the manuscript in fabulous detail on its turning the pages uh, version so that you could actually look at the manuscript far more closely than you could ever do, looking at an, one opening under, under glass, um, I have come to realize and to understand that that digitization was not actually a substitute for the original. And the idea of something created many centuries ago, or even just yesterday, by our forefathers, people who are part of our personal inheritance um, that is something of incalculable importance, and um, I now understand, I think, better than I once did, why the original is quite so irreplaceable.
0: Well, I think we've now run out of time, but thank you both very much, and I'm sure we've all <laughs> thank enjoyed you. it. Today. Thank you.